This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave. Whether you're listening to us here on RRR, 102.7 FM, streaming online at rrr.org.au or via podcast on the radio on demand playback service. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. We all had a giggling fit just then before the mics went on. How are we all doing now? We're composed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm composed. I'll see how I go. (laughs) Now on tonight's show we're going to take a look at Mia Madre, the new film by Italian auteur Nanny Moretti. We're also going to take a look at The Ground We Won, a New Zealand documentary about a rural rugby team. I'm not going to say that too many times in a row. But we're going to begin with Only Yesterday. This is a 1991 Japanese animated feature by the renowned Studio Ghibli Film Studio. This film is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Hence, it's currently in the middle of its limited one-week re-release season at Cinema Nova. So you've still got a few more days to see it on the big screen, but it's also available on home entertainment. It was written and directed by Azeo Takahata, the co-founder of Studio Ghibli and the director of other early Ghibli films, including The Heartbreaking Grave of the Fireflies and more. (laughs) Just saying that title (laughs) makes us all want to weep. Oh my gosh! He's also he also more recently directed the tale of Princess Kaguya, which we covered on this show. I think last year or maybe two years ago. Yeah, I think it was yeah, last recently. year. Yeah, yeah. Last, yeah. Uh, only yesterday is based on a manga of the same name. It's a drama about a twenty-seven-year-old woman who begins to reflect on her life uh, when she was age ten, and this dredges up a string of forgotten memories. Some of them are humorous, some sweet, some painful. As as one of the lesser-known Studio Ghibli films, this in particular here in the West. Is only yesterday an undiscovered classic, or is there a reason it's lesser known? What do you all think? The critical praise that this film has received is quite astonishing. I believe it was the highest box office film in Japan in the year that it was released. 1991 it was, yeah. yeah. this was like a blockbuster, and it was, my understanding is that it was doing something quite different um, in that it was, it was sort of a non-fantastic film, although it has kind of fantastic aspects to it. But um, it was very much focused on, on a woman's story and women's stories in a, in a kind of more of a traditional drama kind of context. There's a great article by Glenn Kenny online where he, he basically declared the re-release of this, like the first great film release of 2016. So critics are on board for this. I think it's something like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, take or leave, whatever that means. But, um, Certainly across the board, critics have been very pro this film. What did you guys think? I pack a bong for only yesterday. <laughs> have you been practising this all I week? Have. <laughs> I'm so proud of you, I Josh. pack a bong for Proustian Japanese animation. I think this is a wonderful film. This is the first time I'd seen it was, was actually today. And it's strange that this has sort of passed me by. It's, and given what you just said in terms of the, the critical reaction, I think it's interesting also... Actually, I have to mention first off, the, the Japanese title for this is Amoide Poroporo, which translates as Memories Trickle Down. I think that's that's a wonderful title and a wonderful sense of what this film is about. I mean, and it's it's interesting in terms of the histories that this film straddles because it was released in 1991. It's predominantly voiced from the perspective of uh, a woman in her mid to late twenties in 1982, reflecting on 
1960, lots of events that circle around 1966 when she was 10 years old. So there's a, a wonderful sense of nostalgia, which is which is certainly common to much of Studio Ghibli's work. But there was something something different about this. It doesn't have the kind of the magical realism of Miyazaki's work. I guess in terms of the nostalgia and, and childhood here, there's something very much tied to, I think, the rural setting because most of this film takes place in a rural setting where she's travelled from Tokyo to this rural setting. And I think there's something about the, maybe the timing and without knowing too much about the, what was going on in, in Japan in a deep fashion in the, the 80s and 90s, it does seem almost a reaction to the technological boom that was going there. There's a, there's a wonderful sense of nostalgia for something about Japan that's been lost in this kind of this technological whirlpool, particularly of, of Tokyo, that she's escaping to, which is somehow tied to this memory of childhood, which is very Proustian in its own right. You know, even if this had been a, a live-action film, I think it would have seemed quite old-fashioned, strangely, even when it first came out. And what it really reminded me most of was not at all... Uh, animation or anything else, certainly from the Judeo Ghibli canon. Um, but rather the films of Yasujiro Ozu. It's really uncannily like uh, a film of his, uh, not necessarily a particular film, but almost his entire oeuvre. These quite languorous, um, quite emotional but gentle, very gentle films, um, sometimes grappling with urban, rural divides and families that are split, a la Tokyo Story or. Uh, uh, sense of generational divide and the different values of younger generations and do they honour the um, the values that their parents uh, raised them um, to uh, be uh, steeped in. Um, so this, this, this is what I was really thinking and even some of the, the compositions in this film remind me of Ozu as well. He was famous for positioning his camera at a certain height, uh, quite unlike almost anybody else on the planet, sort of almost waist high and there are compositions in this film like that as well. So I, I was really feeling the spirit of Ozu permeating this entire really rather gorgeous animation. I, I think we should all... I mean, I'm sure we all saw the uh, original language version, right? None of us saw it. Yep. I saw the trailer for the English language version. It just struck me as abominable uh, immediately. I mean, I, I never... That's never my thing anyway. I you know, see the, the English voice talent rustled up for these things. But... Uh, I was appalled by the trailer and so relieved when I saw this in the original language. I thought, oh, it is every bit as gentle and lovely as I had imagined. Um, and uh, it has that same device as Destroys Us All in Grave of the Fireflies, a little sequence at the end. But this is three years after Grave of the Fireflies was made and maybe he thought he just couldn't put people through that again and just enter on, on a nice, gentle uh, sort of a little montage at the end rather than, oh god, I'm in Grave of the yeah, Fireflies. Can we not talk about that? I'm, yeah, still, recover. I'm still in therapy recovery. I still, do, I still teared up in the closing credits of yeah, this though. Yeah, it's still, very moving. Yeah. It's still I, moving but not devastating. I confess, no. <laughs> I'm, I just, I don't have the Ghibli thing like a lot of other people do. I th obviously I think that there's just been some extraordinary films. I mean, Spirited Away, Pocahontas. I mean, there's just, you know, it, it would be crazy to say that, no, you know, to dismiss Ghibli. But I don't come to it with the strong affection inbuilt that, that most of my peers do, to be honest. And I don't know whether that's just because I came to them a little bit later. Um, I found some really beautiful, beautiful moments in this. And that's what I love about uh, Ghibli films is their sense of, of, of the value of the micro um, 
little moments in this film where the family eat pineapple, fresh pineapple oh, for the first time. Scene. Such yeah. an extraordinarily moving scene. Little things that I'd forgot about my own childhood, even though this is culturally so different, but that strange process where girls would go up to boys or boys would go up to girls and say, so-and-so likes you. These odd little rituals of childhood that are apparently cross-cultural that I had no idea about, that I'd forgotten. So these beautiful micro, the relationship between big sisters and little sisters is a whole thing about not being able to do maths that I was fetal. I can't, I still can't do maths. What kind of fractions? The, the protagonist was struggling with a kind of fraction. And I was like vomiting everywhere. I was having such an anxiety <laughs> attack about the whole thing. The so- I have to admit that the ending was a little too much for me, but I think that says everything about me and nothing what this and nothing about the film. I just continued vomiting everywhere. It, it, the song at the end is also a Japanese version of The Rose. And when I hear that yep. song, I think of Bette Midler dying in a phone booth like that's my association I that's had a where little I went bit of a, that's where I, went. I had a little strange yeah. kind of cultural I've never meltdown. seen the rose so that was good uh, for me I'm so that's sorry Josh the, the, the film based on Janis Joplin spoiler she dies at the damn end damn it <laughs> I feel like I feel like a bit of a, a jerk I mean saying that I just I don't have that built in affinity I do think that this is an extraordinary film but I'm not quite sure if you're new to Jubilee if this would perhaps be the best entry point it's not know. a typical no, entry, no. no. But then again, uh, Tucker Hutt has made more films than probably all of us have seen, whereas we've all seen Miyazaki's, I, I would yeah. wager. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, ever since I started sort of being involved in programming animated shorts as well as all the other shorts I program with my day job, you know, I, I have a lot of experts in these fields who I consult with who give me their opinions about how to evaluate these films. And the animation people I deal with often say to me, they always ask themselves, is there a point in this being animated? They get very frustrated when they see films where it's animated for no reason. I, I often ask myself that. Is there any point in this film being an animated film when they could have done live action? And on the surface, you would say with this film, no. But as you watch it, you realise that the camera holds moments on faces and expressions that I don't think you could have achieved with live action. There's something so pure and artful about the, the drawings and, and the expressions on these faces that you couldn't have done with a live actor, uh, let alone just very small touches of... Um, it's not really magical realism, but you, still, you do get moments where suddenly the film visualises the emotion of a character in a really beautiful way. I mean, I, I was so touched, Alex, by that sequence you were talking about with the two kids very shyly talking to each other in the street, knowing that each other likes them. And, and just that moment where she walks out of the, the, the animation. She just walks up as if she's walking off the page into this kind of white sky and just floats to the air. And that just bowled me over. I just thought that was such a beautiful touch. And it just captured that childhood first crush moment. And yeah, I did that total regression and enjoyed the awkwardness and the loveliness and the weirdness of all of that. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed all these, really adored all these snippets of, of life when as experienced by this 10-year-old girl. It didn't matter that they didn't have some kind of grander purpose or narrative thrust. They were just beautifully little composed moments. However, I am going to say the film lost me a little bit when it moved more into the 27-year-old's life. Like, the second half of the film focuses more on her as a 27-year-old, and although there are some very welcome, lovely returns back to the 10-year-old stuff, I didn't really enjoy the 27-year-old stuff as much, especially as it was increasingly... What I thought was a slightly over-the-top romanticisation of, you know, the country life, and... um, and as it just starts to go into a more conventional romantic territory. Although I've got to admit, that end sequence did win me over. I mean, even though that's a ridiculously saccharine song sung in that wonderfully saccharine way that 
that you often get at the end of these animated films. I, I, I was very touched by the, the symbolism used in the closing credits, but um, I, I wish this was more with the 27 character being in, in the background, focusing on her life as a, a 10-year-old. I think there's a reason for that shift in the, in the film, and I think it's her coming to terms with moments in her past and trying to move on with the future but I, like Thomas I think I found the probably the first half of this film more interesting when it was spending longer times for longer periods with the the 10 year old moments and also some of the other stylistic flourishes in this film the way in which memories just recede there's a, a whole sort of sequence where and it seems like such almost a slow fade where the frame itself seems to recede into the background of the image in, into into darkness I had never seen a memory kind of conveyed or the, or the shift in and out of memory conveyed like that on the screen. It's such a wonderful poetic moment that I don't think would have worked as well in a live-action feature. This is a really an extraordinarily beautiful film. As I said, it's not wholly my cup of tea, but that I think is more of a criticism against myself and my cold, black, dead heart <laughs> than it is the film um, itself. But I was certainly more really struck by, by those op- opening sequences and just these tiny details of youth, really the pineapple scene, I just, I just I did was so well that, that. Scene, and yeah. the skirts um, was that line, looking up skirts was all the rage and everyone was obsessed with periods <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as you are when you're 10 I guess yeah, periods and pineapples, it's all in this film <laughs> poster quotes the tagline, yeah. <laughs> have they re-released this with both the Japanese language version they and have, the Americanized yeah. one yeah, yeah okay. both versions I believe are Playing in the cinema, um, um, yeah. Daisy Ridley, Daisy it? Ridley, and Dev Patel. I mean, it's it's interesting. Just this is probably a, a sort of a tangential note, given the criticism recently or debates about white characters occupying Asian characters or Asian cultural roles. Ghost in the Shell and uh, the Doctor Strange mm-hmm. film. It's interesting in light of of those recent debates, how almost offensive and ab- abhorrent, as you mentioned, Cerise, that seems to feel to me. When you have an English or you know Indian or American voice actors voicing characters which are so explicitly culturally you know oh, Japanese, it's so jarring. It, it is worth mentioning. This happens in every country, though. If you go to was, any country in the world, say, they revoice all the animation, and you've got to go to specialty cinemas to get it in the original version. I first saw Spirited Away in Germany, and that had Nina Hagen as a voice actor. That was special. But <laughs> American animation will be revoiced in other countries. In fact, most most in the West, we get much less revoicing than you do in a lot of Asia and Europe. Um, yeah, I don't like it either, but it happens all over the world, and Europe. European films in languages other than English don't get released in their original language and you might be lucky to catch them at a festival, but again, having worked in festivals, it's it's next to impossible sometimes to get a French animation with the original French language. And yet the French animation we talked about a few weeks ago was in the French language. Yeah, there are exceptions. But yeah, which is um, interesting. Yeah, thank goodness, because, well, they had also had a top-name cast as well, True. which helps. And April is such a sort of pivotal cultural text as well. I think that that might have also been a part of it. I just thought it was interesting in light of those those, those other debates. I think there's certainly a parallel such a huge that can be drawn. debate. We could dedicate a whole show to this. Actually. Sorry, I've opened up Pandora's box. Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, only yesterday, um, I think there's a, a few more screenings left tomorrow and Wednesday at Cinema Nova, but it's certainly available on home entertainment as well. If it's one that's fluent, flown under your radar as it has with us, I think well worth uh, acquainting yourself with. Three, triple, ah. Mia Madre. Also known as My Mother, this is the latest film by Italian auteur Nanni Moretti. 
But he's probably best known for his 1993 film Dear Diary and his Palm Door winning 2001 film The Sun's Room. Moretti not only directs, but is also one of the producers, one of the writers and co-stars as the brother of the main character, Margarita, played by the acclaimed Italian actor Margarita Bai, I think we're going to go with. Margarita is a filmmaker in the film who is attempting to make a social realist film with a difficult American actor played by John Turturro. While coping with a variety of difficult real-world realities, in particular the gradual decline of her terminally ill mother. So this is a film dealing with grief, family, the work-life balance, as well as using the film within a film device, plus a lead actor who shares the name of the character she is playing to raise questions of authenticity and realism in cinema. So what was it about Mia Madre that stood out for all of you? I want to say from the outset, I think John Turturro dancing in this film actually tops... Oscar Isaac in Ex Machina last year. I just want to call it. No, that scene, this, the scene with Tatara in this film horrified me. I never oh, want to see it. men of that age wearing jeans again. <laughs> <laughs> it was grotesque. The, I, <laughs> let's come back. Yeah. Let's hold this point. That was Mia Madre. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Moretti's films. Have you guys seen? Well, here's any an other important Moretti? thing that the previous film by Ola, um, which was uh, name escapes me right now, but his own mother died during the editing of that film. So there's another extra level of reality woven into this one. Um, but weirdly, and despite the fact he's been a very acclaimed auteur for many years in comedy and drama, um, I hadn't seen any of his films. The Sun's Room was uh, lauded all around the world as. Um, some folks declared it amongst the best films of the noughties. Didn't see it. Yeah, uh, missed, yeah early noughties. Yeah. Missed film after film. Finally, is so keen to see one. And, um, yeah, it, 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 I had to do that little bit of reading in order to get some grounding and, and just the fact that it's very important that he's in this film, that it's, it draws so much on his real life. But I, I would also wager that most people seeing this film would not be uh, aware of such things or take that into their, their viewing, their reception of this film which still is then um, still going to, I'm sure, appear reflexive to most viewers anyway. Anyone who's familiar with the film within a film device is usually aware there's something more to it than just the fact that someone's made a film about a film being made. Uh, And, of course, like like most films within a film-type scenarios, it's not going quite to plan. Uh, Hilariously, John Turturro, the... uh, finds himself in a, a sort of a Euro-putting social realist um, situation. It's, that, they're not so common, not these days at least anyway. Genre filmmaking in the 70s and 80s especially was full of casts drawn from every which where and people who struggled with whichever native language a film was supposed to be in but would be fixed in post anyway and everyone would be dubbed by who, who knows who. I, I managed to enjoy this film from a number of these directions with this knowledge and and putting it to one side and just enjoying the drama that unfolds in the course of the film it is very sad uh, there's a real uh, authenticity about the um the way this family gets together but also the sort of extended family has its little ruptures and if we consider the film crew to be part of an extended family but also an ex-lover who's also from film world who's in the mix um, it's, it's a really complex film. There's just, there are a lot of strands to it, and I, I'm full of admiration for it, but um, I somehow also didn't find myself quite as moved as I thought I was going to be from such a film, and maybe that's actually because I knew too much. I found this... Sorry, Thomas. I was going to say, I found this film incredibly moving, um, and not the least reasons because I decided to watch this with my mother yesterday, which was Mother's Day, um, 
And having been pre-warned by Alex, I just absent-mindedly forgotten that this was about a, a dying mother or a mother who's terminally ill. So it was um, it was a pre- it was sort of rife uh, for an emotional sort of scenario. I found this an incredibly sophisticated film, and, and at the beginning, when I was sort of pondering the, the storytelling device of the film within a film, and, and how is the film balancing, and what is the relationship and the symbolic sort of resonance of the filmmaker's private life trying to deal with this terminally ill parent and, and the relationship with her brother, and this film that she's making, which is sort of a, a film about a worker's uprising and a kind of the, the uh, owner of this factory who's played by John Turturro coming in and sort of laying off workers. I was trying to find, you know, what is the connection between these two elements of the story? And I actually admire the fact that it's not so obvious from the beginning, and I think the more it goes on, and and not even knowing stuff about the the extra textual levels of, of the director and, and his 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 mother and this idea about the questions of reality. I think what is at the core of this film is, is or an ex- exploration of death as the ultimate reality and how people can't quite come to terms with it or how they deny it and, and how they postpone that realisation of, of death's effect. And you see this played out in so many levels of the film, particularly in the sense that as a director, we see her telling actors things like, I want you to say the lines, but don't 100% believe them. I want you to sort of half believe in them. Or lines like, which don't seem to make quite sense for poor John Turturro, I, I want you to be the character, but stand beside the character. So everything's sort of on a level of truth, but somehow displaced from the truth. And we see this played out time and time again in both the filmmaking side of the, the film and also, and, and most overtly, with the, the narrative about the, the dying parent. And I found that really profound and sophisticated, the way it starts to, as the film develops, explore this idea of death as this ultimate reality, which we deal with in very different ways. And, and clearly for the character of, of, of Marguerite, you know, in quite profound ways that even at the end, we're still not sure if you can come to terms with something as momentous as death as the ultimate reality. I um, This is one of those films, one of those real pleasures, I guess, of, of this job in that I, like you, Ceres, had been very curious about Moretti's work, but I really hadn't gone out of my way to watch anything. It was sort of one of those names that hovered uh, in the atmosphere around me and, you know, sort of it's a, it's a box to tick one day. But um, I'm so glad that we did this because I don't think, I, I honestly don't think I would have seen this film um, if I wasn't kind of forced to. I mean, that sounds a bit more dramatic than no, I meant it I, to come out. Absolutely, same here. Um, and I, I mean, I, I found it really, really, really intelligent, really moving. Um, her performance, Margarita uh, oh, wow. Bay's performance, is really just... Uh, this This won some impressive awards, I think. Uh, well, Cahir du Cinema declared it the best film of yeah. last year, which and isn't he, so much an award as just a That was a the big accolade, yeah. The big kudos. Yeah. It, won, um, it won a funny kind of obscure the, side you, award at Cannes. It did, it yeah, did. Which um, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's not one of the main ones, but it was an award. It was certainly... There were accolades received. Um, her performance is astronomical. I mean, it really is one of the most remarkable performances I think that we're going to see this year, even if this isn't one of the most remarkable films. Uh, when we get to at the end of our, of, our, of our films of the year, I think that her performance really stands out already as something really special. Josh, I'm so glad that you picked up that line about her Her constant... I mean, it's a, it's a motif through the film where she keeps telling actors, you need to stand, you need to be the character, but also the actor that you are, the person that you are, needs to stand, up, stand outside that character. And it, it it really is um, like a drumbeat through this film. She keeps coming back to it. And at one point she even says, I don't even, I don't know if actors know what it means. I don't even know if I know what it means. And I think that's why I flagged the dancing scene because I don't think I got it until that dancing scene where suddenly it was the character, but it was also John Turturro. And, and I just loved how well-crafted that moment was. Even though it traumatised my dear colleague. Such weird dancing. Really and crazy. the jeans were just that little bit too high. 
<laughs> it was weird. That I'm was, really sorry I brought this up. You I wouldn't... love John Turturro as well, but those jeans. It was just... I, I actually don't believe anybody looks good ja- dancing in jeans, so uh, this film just confirmed that. Think I about that. I had no idea that you had this thing about jeans. I've learned no, a lot tonight. No, I until I saw this film. <laughs> this is a whole new revelation. I, I think that that's why that scene was so... I mean, aside from the fact that it's John Turturro doing an incredibly insane dance, I think that's why that scene in particular really struck me because it was the moment that I understood this line that that even the main character herself had said, I'm not really sure that I understand this. And I think that ties into, Josh, what you were saying, this idea of watching a film, and even, Cerise, what you were saying about knowing about the director, and you, you bring that kind of baggage in. And, of course, all of that is related to the film within a film. Well, I think that's almost an invitation within that, that dialogue to watch the film as as itself, but also as at one remove with yes. whatever knowledge you might bring to it and, and throw that baggage you have into your reception of it as well it's a very postmodern um you know, even acknowledging its own postmodernism so postmodern and the, also the, the new wave stuff way. so you no. know like goddard's contempt um uh, eight and a half you know these kind of traditions i mean at one point Turo is screaming out the name of italian <laughs> famous italian directors <laughs> at the out the window of a, ta- a taxi no they're in a car and he's driving through the uh the rome night screaming out and elio petri got a call out which i was really chuffed with the prize that won at Cannes was the prize of the, I might pronounce this wrongly, the ecumenical jury. Hmm. It's a, I Just believe, as I said. I believe it's faith-based. It was originally yep. a Christian organisation. Is that right? They're, uh, they're an independent group of faith-based critics, I believe, who, yeah. who travel to the various festivals and give their own prize. you know a bit more about this, Cerise? Well, yeah. Um, having earlier this year been in Fribourg, which is uh, quite a Catholic town, but always has an ecumenical jury whereby they get... It's always from folks from the Christian faith, uh, but various denominations, mm. one, one of each, so it's all very equable. And between them, they'll award a prize, which I don't think necessarily has money attached. All no. I can think of is Father Ted. <laughs> so they, they, according to Wikipedia, the objective of the award is to honour works of artistic quality which witness to the power of film to reveal the mysterious depths of human beings through what concerns them, their hurts and failings, as well as their hopes. I reckon it t- ticks that box. Yep, it does tick that box. I, um, yeah, I was aware the whole time watching this of how little I knew about the actors and the director because the film is very much saying to you... Aspects of their lives are being reflected in this film. Yeah, that, that, that constant direction she gives, which is, I want to see you, the actor, as well as the character. And we often talk about how much... Yeah, is authenticity in cinema when you produce this version of reality or is it when you acknowledge that it's a construct? And it seems to be what the character is doing in this film is working on the construct, that we know this is the actor being this part. And the actor, you know, she's being played... Hang on. The character is being played by someone. The, the actor and the character have the same names. I was so aware of... I wish I knew more about this this Italian actor who is huge in, in Italy and more about Moretti. I, I haven't seen any of his other films either, but I have seen him as an actor in the 2008 film Quiet Chaos, which which I really enjoyed. But he, he was just the lead actor in that in that film. I, um, I think I admired this one objectively. I, I wasn't particularly blown away by it. I was very kind of cold and fluey when I saw it, so maybe that didn't help. But I did feel like I've seen all this kind of thing before, this acknowledging, you know, what is real, the film within a film. Um, I mean, we just mentioned a whole bunch of classic films that have done this before. And, and even the, the, the sort of coping with grief stuff uh, you know, has been explored before. So I think this is a very good film, but for me it wasn't breaking any new ground. It didn't do anything special for me, but I objectively very much respect and appreciate what it's doing. It's curious to hear, Josh, that you're, you're reading 
thinking of it was about how we kind of denied death. I was wondering whether it was a film almost celebrating the way life does go on and that the film is very conscious of the fact that she has chosen to keep working. Her, her brother pretty much puts his entire life on hold, cancels everything to care for his mother, while she continues working and having a life. And the film in no way, no way at all demonises her for that. It says that this is kind of the reality of her situation and, and this is probably what she needs to do to, to hold it all together. One of the things I really like about the more mechanical aspects, I guess, of this film is, is precisely in relation to that um, point thomas which is how uh, there's a very small subplot about latin yes about learning latin and this idea of what is the point of maintaining a dead language and that's a question that's asked over and over and over again and i was really struck by the you know we've got a little girl doing homework like why am i learning latin and there's there's a a family connection you know that 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 her grandmother had started had taught latin um, this idea of legacy through language um, made quite explicit in the film that was really difficult to not read in terms of a, of a broader idea of cinematic language and cinematic history. And I just thought it was, it was just so well done, never preachy or patronising or smug, but just um, just so organically built into this film. It just felt so natural the way that it dealt with these quite complex ideas in, in what I felt were really, really useful and um, honest. I don't know whether that's a an appropriate word but it felt like a really honest and dignified yeah and the use of the dream sequences was the other thing i wanted to pick up on i mean that this idea of the middle space i mean you've got these sort of two worlds that she's sort of bouncing between and and the way in which the film doesn't really make overt some of those sequences whether they are in fact dream sequence and and you get this sense of this middle space where she's toying with confronting the the reality that she can't really confront in the the kind of quote-unquote real world i I, yeah i found this a film that that probably for the first half an hour i was struggling with and i felt at a at a remove from that at a certain point it just sort of sucked me in and I thought uh, you know intellectually and emotionally this film completely won me over how did your mum like it Yeah, well, she'll probably phone up later. Um, <laughs> Mum, hi, thanks for watching it with me if you're listening. Uh, look, I think she was taken with it as well. Yeah, and she wasn't upset that we'd watched it or I'd forced her to endure it on Mother's Day. So thank you again. Whereas I uh, think the film within the film would have turned out to have been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> really terrible, leaden, pedestrian and obvious. Totoro couldn't act. I mean, in the film. Yeah. <laughs> the, their character couldn't, yeah. No, no, he's great. Totoro's great, oh, except no when he dances in jeans. <laughs> John Tight. <laughs> My mother is got a limited release at the moment. Uh, it sounds like we are going to, as a collective, say it's worth checking out. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on Three Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Plato's Cave. We're going to take a look at the New Zealand documentary, The Ground We Won. This had festival screenings last year and a brief cinema run at Acme earlier this year, but we've caught up with it now that it's been released on Home Entertainment. The film follows a rural rugby team during a new season after a particularly bad previous year. With minimal interviews and mostly observational footage, we see the team members at home, working on their farms, in training, playing on the field and letting off steam after matches, often by taking part in heavy, heavy drinking rituals. The film provides a number of insights into a particular type of masculinity. We're mainly looking here at men who live in small and remote communities whose bonding through team sport seems to be a very important part of their lives. Did you all feel like you got similar insights from the ground we won? I think we were looking at you, Cerise, as the New Zealand expat. Yeah. Um, 
Mm. Were these your people? <laughs> were, these, were these my people? <laughs> they're, they're a type of people I'm uh, familiar with um, at a remove, and not just because I'm on this side of the ditch these days. There is, a yes, a very certain sort of masculinity um, that is... Uh, well, it's a it's a curious thing because it's the, the, these this is very much uh, very much rural people. Uh, rugby it, it's it's his religion in, in New Zealand, and that can be a bit difficult to understand um, from outside of New Zealand. But because the All Blacks are probably the dominant team in any code of sport in uh, in the world, and it's utterly baffling that it, this is the case for New Zealand has a population of about four million people. Um, but where where rugby? Well, the old adage where that rugby is a, a gentleman's game played, <laughs> yeah. a thug's game played by gentlemen, and soccer a, a gentleman's game played by thugs. Here, this, this rugby really is just played by thugs. Um, and, but it's outside of that whole elitist world in which rugby union. This is very specifically rugby union, and there is a difference with league. And we won't go there because it's dull. But oh, there's a huge difference. It's a huge and yeah. historically a huge cultural difference. It was it was an amateur game until still relatively recently, and these people are playing it. With true amateurish passion, amateurish in that they are rubbish at it, but also in that it is just a passion fueled activity for them, which gives meaning to their lives on Saturdays, which they would not necessarily know how otherwise to spend. Um, and there is clearly great uh, unity amongst these these men and uh, the women folk of the the area as well. Once the team starts performing well again, and there's something to cheer, but uh, it is. Uh, a great community bond clearly this this team even though they're rubbish at the start of the film and improving throughout it uh i i I get that sense of camaraderie um because that can exist in anything it needn't be sport just wherever communities find something to obsess over and participate in group activity but in terms of the what is particular about this it really is about this hyper masculinity but it's also kind of a um uh, some of these people are not exactly uh, model physical specimens, and that's a curious thing when you you yoke uh, masculinity, which is attached to extreme physical endeavours, because rugby is a brutal game, brutal on the body, uh, with people who are very imperfect specimens and who also conduct themselves quite imperfectly off the field. Uh, these drinking rituals are uh, kind of oh god, are horrifying. These 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 are people who are responsible for bringing life into this world. We see several cows being birthed off the, the field. I hesitate. I don't hesitate to say. But the, these are responsible human <laughs> beings. They run dairy farms. They run businesses. They're competent people, but they also behave abominably, but still in a contained way. Um, I, I neither... I, I don't really know how to judge them for what they do because I, I would hate to find myself in that environment, should that ever happen. But it's, in a way, I'm kind of happy that they have it. Yeah, this reminds me of Waking Fright. It's like the fir- that was the first reference that sprung to mind. This is without having the sort of the, the outsider figure, although he's there to a degree in one of the younger males we see who's sort of hazed at various points in, in the film, sort of the, the younger one that they're bringing into the, the circle of established they, masculinity. They even call him Pom, don't they? Well, there's Pom and there's Peanut. And so Peanut, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Peanut seems to be the focal point for much of the initiation, apart from that one scene or sequence involving mm. poor Pom. Um, it is, this is homosociality 101. I mean, this is, is a, a man's world. I mean, the, the female characters in the film... The few we see are, you know, resigned to kitchen duties in the clubhouse, uh, a couple of spectators later on in the film, and a stripper. 
and that's kind of the roles assigned to females, even though discussions about the female body and sex and so on, you know, monopolise aspects of the drinking conversation as this film goes on. There's something quite terrifying about this spectacle of masculinity, like it was, like it is in, in Waking Fright, um, that you, you suddenly understand to a degree in terms of the remoteness of this community and, and the kind of the rituals as part of this, but there's also something quite strange in the sense that one of the key subjects of the film is a, a father with two young boys of his own and we never quite understand or, or it's never quite explained from memory where the mother has gone or what's happened within this sort of scenario so you see these strange extremes where he's this self-professed kind of thug basically on the field he's the hard man although he keeps saying within the rules of the game and then you see him at home trying to kind of be the the farmer be the father and and also training the young boys in in a kind of a, a local team as well and and trying to instill in them certain values which are often contradicted in the behavior of the men elsewhere in the film i think this is actually a more interesting documentary than it seemed on on, on a first glance yeah, it kind of it grew in me. At first, I wasn't too sure what the point of all this was, and it seemed a bit too observational for me. And actually, I must admit, the black-and-white photography annoyed me. It felt a bit faux-arty that had absolutely no purpose or point being done that way. It didn't need that black-and-white veneer. But I, I sort of had... A, I, I was not scared of these men or this culture. It was more... Um, I felt actually a lot of affection towards them in the sense that they are doing it hard and they're very hard workers. They're, you know, I thought this guy with his two sons was was mostly actually quite quite sweet and having played rugby union myself for a season believe it or not I, I do totally get what he was saying about it is a rough game but you stick to the rules these are rules here for a reason it stops people getting hurt um and i think they're, they're, they seem to be remarkable as farmers there's quite there's an incredible scene at, at the end where one just pulls off the road and has to birth a cow at very last <laughs> without any notice which I, I actually found a very beautiful moment it was more a sense of sadness that they they, they seem to keep falling into the these ridiculous rituals that bring out the absolute worst of them, which contradict the men you often see on the field and in, in their family life. I mean, I think this is a really good film in the sense it's not trying to be judgmental, but I, I did feel a lot of sadness for this kind of sad debauchery. The, the one thing I wish the film picked up on more is there's a reference very early to the start of the film about farmers who have been suiciding. It, it said very off the cuff in relation to the economic woes and then later in the film we see these two very fragile sensitive young men who are involved being quite upset you know one is actually crying and just how horribly they're being picked on and told to forget about it and being told to toughen up and i thought that right there is why men in remote communities kill themselves because any signs of emotional sensitivity gets beaten out of them by this toxic masculinity i wish we saw more of that kind of analysis in the film I um I kind of flatlined with this film. There was just there at no point was I hooked. I had a kind of clinical admiration for precisely the, the points that you guys have picked up. So I think this um this this as you say really tragic sense that runs through this film, but this this focus on ritual and that's such a key word. And I I, I would have absolutely zero doubt that that was a, a word that was used a lot when they were editing all of this footage together. Um, when the director sat down in the editing booth and got this remarkable bulk of material together, that that was what they consciously were, was, were focusing on, these rituals of masculinity, um, which is fascinating to see it sort of played out like that. You know, it is a very kind of... Tri- I mean, this is a film about tribal um, behaviours and tribal politics. And, yeah, it did lack a little bit of cohesion to me in that it there wasn't really a narrative that felt that it was brought to the surface about w- what's going wrong with that 
or is something going wrong with that? And I do like the objectivity in that they weren't making a moral judgment, but at the same time, it just felt a little bit, yeah, just like it lacked cohesion. The I was like you, Thomas. The um the black and white photography just felt like a kind of crappy Instagram filter for me. But what I found in the last couple of days since I've seen it. And I can't, this is actually one of the things that I can't quite shake about this film that I find so intriguing is that it really rejects that fetishization of Middle Earth New Zealand by, by stripping out the colour. It's not that New Zealand. Like it's not the New Zealand that we usually see or not the rural New Zealand that we normally see in film. I don't know whether that was conscious, but that's, that's in an odd way, that's actually what's that's a good stayed point. with me. Um, but it did feel, I mean, it really did feel like a kind of cheesy Instagram filter. Like, I, I would agree with that. With the exception of that, there's one remarkable, and it's beautiful, it's probably the most beautiful shot in the whole film, and they're training in the midst of this fog and mist. Yeah. And it's, that it's, is it's, it, That's like Bergman. Yeah, like, it's, it's, yeah, I always felt when I was watching that, is this the reason why you've shot the entire, or, or transferred the entire film to black and white, so you capture this as opposed to that seeming somehow, you know, going from colour to, to black and white. Um yeah, look, it is a strange film. I think in some ways the structural issues are because it seems in part torn between doing the the season review, which is part and parcel of the sports doco, but also trying to do a social observational doco. And in meshing them together, it, it definitely loses a sense of structural cohesion. Yeah, there are some beautiful skies too. These are, these are the moments of beauty in this film. It's in an area of the North Island, uh, the Waikato. Uh, it's not the most stunning part of the country necessarily. Um, but look, it's a, it's a, it is a real curio. This apparently did very good box office in New Zealand, uh, where, of course, rugby is a religion, but I suspect a lot of people who saw it probably came back out of it a bit, bit bemused by the experience. It certainly doesn't pander to uh, that sort of uh, fervid um, love of the All Blacks that the whole nation is, is drawn up, and even me, who would never watch a game of rugby otherwise, but if the All Blacks are on, I'm watching. It's just uh, we're hardwired that way. I wonder how the subjects would feel about the documentary in terms of how they were proposed. Yeah, that would be presented. fascinating. That would be absolutely fascinating. And I've just got to also say, what is it with rugby union or league and cross-dressing? Have you ever seen the Sydney footy show where every second gag is a man in a dress with everyone having hysterics? You get a sequence in this film with no context where they're all in really weird fancy dress holding a mock trial. Actually, that scene I found really disturbing. AFL does that That as reminded well. me of yeah. MASH. Yeah. Yeah. But there was no context in this documentary about why these men are suddenly dressed as bananas. And there's one guy dressed as a banana and they've got weird wigs on and dresses and they're just doing this it was, oh, it was like deliverance. Riding there was one guy riding another guy yeah. around the dressing rooms and I was like, Okay, now we're in deliverance country. Squeal yeah. like a sheep. <laughs> Uh, we've ended on a weird note. We've ended on a really weird note. I'm sorry. Pineapples and periods. Let's go back there. Tonight on Plato's Cave, only yesterday is screening for just two more days at Cinema Nova, but is also available on home entertainment courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. Mia Madre is on limited release through Palace Films. The Ground We Won is available on home entertainment courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. You've been listening to a very giggly Thomas, Josh, Cerise and Alexandra. We'll try to compose ourselves in time for next week. We'll be back then at 7pm. Good night. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.